Good evening, ghouls and ghoulettes, and welcome to Killer Horror Critic, the podcast worth dying for. Hosted by the Killer Horror Critic himself, this is the show where guests from all over the horror spectrum join to talk about some of their favorite horror films. So get snugged under the covers, grab a cuddly puppy, and prepare for tonight's blood-curdling episode of Killer Horror Critic. Good evening, horror fans, and welcome to another episode of Killer Horror Critic. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Chris. And this is the podcast where my wife and I discuss horror films, a couple of drunks at the bar, so maybe you never learn anything, but hopefully you have a good time listening. So, tonight we're going to be wrapping up our The End of the World as We Know It month with the 1995 film In the Mouth of Madness from director John Carpenter, which, by the way, this is one of my favorite Carpenter films that I feel is way underseen and needs to be appreciated (laughs) much more than it is. (laughs) But before we get into that, we have our usual spoiler-free stuff. So as far as releases go this week, so there's some pretty interesting ones, and these will all be available by the time you're listening to this. But first up is the Ron Turn reboot, which is coming to just theaters for some reason. I don't really understand the release it's, for this whatsoever. It should be a on. terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, I do not suggest going to theaters at all, and I don't suggest going to theaters to see this film either, but... You know, so maybe wait for a VOD release, but the Ron Turn reboot, which is basically uh, about uh, a group of teenagers who end up in the wilderness and stumble upon a tribe of people that have been living like it's the 1800s out in the woods for a while. And <laughs> 1800s? <laughs> or, or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> but it's written by the same guy who did the original Ron Turn film, which there are, I think before this, there are like six sequels and all. But this this one is one that I I don't think is going to sit really well with a lot of Ron Turn fans. You know, this is a franchise that I was never a huge fan of. Uh, but if you're coming to Ron Turn looking for, you know, mutant hillbilly cannibals, uh, this film is not quite that. It tries to do things a little bit different with the villains of the movie and maybe kind of over explains their motivations a bit <laughs> so it sounds like it suffers from the curse of most reboots well of a lot of reboots dealing with i mean yes you know it suffers from the the halloween or the nightmare on elm street remakes issues where they kind of try to over explain the evil and sometimes i just want to be dealing with something evil and not you just want murderers Exactly. You know, so uh, our writer on KillerHorrorCritic.com, Amy Luahava, she also had kind of a similar feeling with it where I know she is a big fan of the Ron Turn franchise and was not too thrilled about <laughs> the fact that it's not just a simple hillbilly cannibal movie right (laughs) i have to wonder since they brought the original writer back if the original writer for the first wrong turn looked at what the franchise became went no that's not what i intended at all this is what i meant if you had seen this you would know that that is not the case because (laughs) that is not what wrong turn was But anyway, so if you want to read Amy Lou's review, just go to KillerHorrorCritic.com. Uh, you can also follow Amy Lou on Twitter, at Amy Lou Ahava, and Ahava is A-H-A-V-A. So yeah, so that one I wasn't too impressed with. It, it is very gory, though, and features some pretty intense violence. So if you're, you know, if you're watching it for that, that part will, I'm sure, 
you know, satisfy you. It's just that if you're looking for a standard hillbilly cannibal movie, this is not really it. So, <laughs> uh, next up is the Queen of Black Magic, which is coming to Shutter, and uh, our Jeffrey W. Hollinsworth wrote the review for this one. You can follow Jeffrey on Twitter at umbrella underscore ops. Uh, but this is one that was written by Joko Anwar, who recently did the film in Pedagore that also came to Shutter last year. And in Pedagore, I loved. I haven't seen Queen of Black Magic myself yet, but or nor have I read Jeffrey's review yet because I'm behind on things. But <laughs> <laughs> but this one is essentially, as far as I understand, about a woman getting revenge on people through black magic. And it, the stills that I've seen from it, the trailer that I've seen, look incredible. That sounds and, amazing. Yeah, and I and I trust Joko Noir. Now, granted, he didn't direct this; he wrote it, but uh, he is a very talented filmmaker, so I do expect good things from this. Uh, so that's another one you can check out. And lastly, is a film called The Funeral Home. This is coming to VOD by the time you listen to this. Uh, our writer Kalani Landgraf wrote the review on it. You can follow Kalani on Twitter at Cheesy Bones. Uh, but The Funeral Home is basically about a family. Uh, run funeral home where they are haunted by some kind of dark spirit. And, you know, this was a really interesting one. I, I forget what the country of origin is. For some reason, I want to say Chilean, but I feel like that's wrong. I think so. But, but they do a really good job of kind of bringing somewhat of a different spin to these kind of haunting possession films, you know. I don't want in- to get into it and spoil anything, but they're... There's just a lot of things that the funeral home does well that I really enjoyed. You know, it's a very creepy, uh, original kind of take on these sorts of movies that uh, that kind of toys with the idea of possession and and the way that these spirits act. You know, yeah. it offers a lot more myth and folklore into it. It's why I really like getting watch possession films from other countries and other cultures because they do view it differently. Also, with this one, I really like the family dynamic. It's mm. not necessarily a good family dynamic, um, but I thought they were re- a really interesting, cool family to watch having to deal with this situation. Yeah, it adds some meat on the bones for the story with it and, and some extra emotional drama, but... Uh, but no, you're exactly right. You know, it's it's a film like this, and and I'm assuming Queen of Black Magic are are why I love foreign horror. You know, because they they do they look and do they they look at horror differently and what scares them differently, and so they do things differently. You know, yeah. uh, so anyone who's like, well, I don't watch foreign horror films because I don't like reading subtitles, like, no, no. stop it. <laughs> you're missing out. <laughs> you are missing out on so many good horror films by not doing that. I mean. You know, the the thing people have to think is like, uh, yeah, just because it's a foreign film doesn't mean that it's not great. Like, exactly. They have their great movies, too, you know, so it just... So, yeah, no, there's just so much content that you're missing out if, if you don't check these movies out. So, The Funeral Home, while I'm not going to say that it's like, oh, the greatest film of the year or whatever, it is a really solid haunting film. So, if you're into those kind of movies, I do suggest checking that one out. But, anyway, so, as usual, moving into a little bit more on In the Mouth of Madness... Uh, we always like to do our poll on Twitter at Killer from Space and kind of get your thoughts and feelings on the film. So, between love it, it's fine, don't like it, and never seen it, where do you think the audience falls on in the mouth of madness? I feel like since it's a John Carpenter film, it has to be love it. Them's the rules. Those are the rules, and I do love almost all of John <laughs> Carpenter's movies. Um, in this case, you're right, but I will say I'm surprised by the results. So. 69% of the audience loves it, uh, 18% said it's fine, only 2% don't like it, and 11% have never seen it. 
Um, I actually thought that it would lean a lot more towards never seen it or that it's fine because I feel like In the Mouth of Madness is this film that gets lost between a lot of Carpenter's other work, you know, such as the thinner Halloween. And, like, I get it. Those are classics. I mean, Halloween is one of the greatest slashers of all time. The Thing is arguably the greatest creature feature of all time. So I understand why it gets lost a little bit. But to me, In the Mouth of Madness is one of the best Lovecraftian cosmic horror movies of all time. (laughs) I definitely agree with that. Like, we watch a lot of Lovecraft in this house. Um, And I think In the Mouth of Madness is definitely up there for one of my more favorite Lovecraft ones. Even though I, I think this movie is phenomenal. I have no idea what the fuck happens in this movie. Well, we're going to get into that. So, <laughs> so in the Mouth of Madness, uh, this one's basically about a uh, insurance investigator named John J. Trent, played by Sam Neill, who I love and who's really great in horror. You can also see him in The Omen Part 3 and Event Horizon and, of course, Jurassic Park. But he learns of this writer named Sutter Kane who has disappeared and the publisher wants him to go investigate and see if he can find Sutter Kane and and acquire the new novel that they've purchased so because they just want to make their money right so he goes off to go find Sutter Kane and and him and his partner end up finding themselves uh trapped in this town that has essentially come to life from Sutter Kane's work and you learn throughout the course of the movie that Sutter Kane's writing essentially has an effect on people makes them go crazy and yep. and his writings are becoming reality He's a very, like, Lovecraftian type writer, so there's lots of monsters and cosmic stuff, you know. But no, so it's it can be a confusing film, oh. but but really interesting. So as far as comments on the film go, uh, again, these are all from Twitter. Uh, at the Bobby Nelson says, I love so many things about that movie. The core idea of a horror novelist work coming to life. Lots of very cool imagery. Excellent casting of Sam Neill as the protagonist and Charlton Heston as the publishing CEO. I fucking love Sam Neill in this. Like, he's so much fun to watch as, like, this pes- kind of pessimistic insurance investigator. So he's fantastic. Like, the concept's really cool. So, yeah, I 100% agree. This movie's fantastic. Yeah, no, it's a great concept. I, I remember when I first heard about it, I was, uh, my curiosity was immediately peaked because I-, I do love these stories about writers and and their works coming to life you know there are other concepts that kind of deal with this but in the mouth of madness is the one that i think nails it the best but also just quick mention that yeah charlton heston shows up randomly in this which which i love too because it's kind of one of his um somewhat later films you know and i mean you know this is a guy who was in planet of the apes and soylent green you know charlton's had a bit of experience in in horror and sci-fi as well as many other great classics and and it's just so i i just love that carpenter is like yeah, I love Charlton Heston. Let's put him in the movie for two scenes, you know, because that's yeah. all he's really in it for. Uh, but it's a great cameo, and he does a great job. But uh, So anyway, thank you to Bobby Nelson for the comment. Really appreciate it. Uh, next is at Cinema Tossico. And it, so it's Cinema T-O-S-S-I-C-O. And they say, I love it. Great story and characters, not to mention a killer soundtrack as well. A very underrated movie. Oh, my God. The sound and the music for this is amazing. And, like... Every every time there's actually a good soundtrack, I actually have to mention it because I never noticed the music ever. Matt always has to point it out to me. Um, but yeah, it did a great job of really like setting the creepy, eerie kind of feeling to everything. Yeah, well, it also has a little bit of that John Carpenter rock to it as well, you know. So uh, Carpenter and Jim Lane did the music for this, and and yeah, I cannot agree more. It you know it starts off with that sort of like John Carpenter bum 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 like it it has 
his kind of vibe in the beginning. And then as the film kind of goes on, yeah, it, it evolves more into that sort of creepy, um, atmospheric type tone. And it, it's something that Carpenter always does really well. You can always sense his presence in the score, even when someone else does, or even when someone else worked on it or did it themselves. Like, even when you listen to uh, a Neil Morricone score for The Thing, you know, a Neil Morricone is a, a master, or he was a master composer. But it still it, sounds like Carpenter. <laughs> but it sounds like a Carpenter-esque score, right? Yep. So, so Carpenter always has a really good influence on the music in these movies. And so, yeah, I cannot agree more. The soundtrack's incredible. Uh, so thank you at Cinematosco for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, next up is at Becky Tyler Art, and they say one of Carpenter's most underrated films. <laughs> you definitely <laughs> which, agree with that. <laughs> which I definitely agree. I mean, I, I was just talking about that, but but no, I agree. I, I feel like it's one that is slowly coming more into relevance. You know, I mean, especially when you compare this film to like the modern day and some of the themes that we're going to get into. I mean, this film has always been relevant, but it feels like even more so it's becoming more and more relevant. Oh, so. definitely. Especially in this past year, I feel like. Yeah, so so no, I, I do agree it's underrated, but hopefully, you know, between people like us and, <laughs> and others talking about it more and more, hopefully others will start to see it and appreciate it for what it is. Uh, but thank you, Becky Tyler. Appreciate it. Next up is at Bede Germain, and that's B-E-D-E. J-E-R-M-Y-N and Bede's a friend of mine so what's up Bede uh, and he just says a film that gets better and better each time I watch it it's definitely one of Carpenter's most underrated films but I would even argue one of this but I would even argue one of his best works as well plus it makes a great double feature with his Masters of Horror episode Cigarette Burns <laughs> I I definitely think that this is a movie that gets better and better with every rewatch because it is kind of a like more complicated storyline because it's all about reality and the perception of reality. So I feel like every time we watch this movie, I like it a little bit more. Mm. Well, it's a, it's a film with a lot to unpack, right? You know, it's not, uh, as our next comment is going to mention, it's not one of those where you can just watch it once and suddenly understand everything about it. I mean, this is a film where literally every word, image, piece of dialogue, like it all just ends up, uh, having meaning for later on, you know, it's one of those films where there is no, there's no wasted moment, I guess you could say. So yeah, no, there's a lot to notice with this film, a lot to take away from it and and deconstruct, you know. So <laughs> uh, it's a very brilliant script. So yeah, definitely one that I I would agree. I think it gets better the more you watch it because you pick up on more, you yeah. know. So and I also agree. Cigarette burns, great combo with this. You know, they're both kind of these supernatural detective stories dealing with in one case a, a novelist and another case a film driving people mad you know so it's <laughs> uh the two do go very well in hand in hand but anyway thank you Bede, for the or for the comment appreciate it and lastly is at sinful underscore redhead and sinful is s-i-n-n-f-u-l and there's a friend of mine sarah what's up sarah and she says Although the movie is confusing to follow and needs a second watch to really understand all the layers going on within the plot, it's still a beautifully shot and interesting movie. Sam Neill is wonderful and plays crazy brilliantly, while at the same time not going super over the top. Can I just say it was such a weird moment for me because I think I'd seen Sam Neill in Jurassic Park and that was about it before we watched In the Mouth of Madness for the first time. Mm. So watching him, like, his slow descent into madness in this film, I was just like... No, but that's the dinosaur guy. Well, I think it's funny for anyone seeing Sam Neill for the first time 
in Jurassic Park and then exploring his other work because I think he did Event Horizon after Jurassic Park. So I want to say that movie was like 96 or 98 and Jurassic Park is like 92 or 94, I believe. But yeah, when you look back at some of his previous work, I mean, In the Mouth of Madness, The Omen Part 3, where he plays the Antichrist or the villain, you know, it is a little bit off-putting at first, I guess, because you're like, wait a minute, my dinosaur guy, my sweet, sweet <laughs> dinosaur man with his raptor claw is now a monster? Like, <laughs> Apparently he's always been a monster. The dinosaur man is just a lie. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Sam, Sam Neill's great in horror, you know. The, the films that he's done in the genre are all... Whether or not you like the movie itself, he is always very interesting in them. And and I agree with Sarah that, you know, he does a good job of playing this role without overdoing it. Uh, there are certain moments early on where I think he maybe overdoes it a little bit. But it's yeah. but it's really it's really like nitpicky things, you know, like um like so when the film opens and he's in the uh asylum cell and he's lighting a cigarette, he has just like sort of this goofy wide eyed look as he's like letting the doctor light a cigarette right so it's little things like that where i'm like okay maybe pull it back just a little bit <laughs> reel it in sam um but no for the most part he does a great job and especially which i won't spoil here but especially towards the end of the film when he's giving some of his final moments of dialogue like he's chilling yes. he's absolutely chilling so <laughs> so anyway thank you sarah for the comment appreciate it uh, and then last little spoiler-free thing we do here is the tagline versus the film. Just talking about the tagline and what we think of it overall. So the tagline for In the Mouth of Madness was, Lived any good books lately? <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me with that tagline, I think going into the movie, it's kind of like funny and silly. But like after you've seen that movie, that tagline is weirdly chilling. Just because... How so? Well, it's chilling... Because of the whole concept of this film, you know, this film is about reality shifting and how an author, a book can change all of that. Mm. And like when you really start to think about it and pull it apart, like it's books have changed our society like on many different occasions. And so the reality of like that statement kind of freaks me out a little bit. Well, it you know, yeah, I mean, that statement is straight up kind of uh addressing the idea that reality is malleable right like mm -hmm. it's <laughs> reality is what you make of it and unfortunately you know whether you think something is true or not true if enough people disagree with you then that's the reality yeah you know so so no there there are a lot of elements like that that are actually quite frightening about in the mouth of madness <laughs> and so i agree like you hear that tagline at first and you're like oh okay yeah whatever you know that's that's fun um and, and you just assume like at first of oh yeah it's just about you know books coming to life but once you see the movie you really begin to understand what this movie's talking about which is that idea of reality only being reality if enough people believe that it is reality yeah and that all it takes for it to not be reality is if enough people believe that what you think is reality isn't and your minds are probably already melting just trying to keep up with <laughs> with what i'm saying here but but it is the chilling element of this movie and so so overall yeah i love it you know uh we got another uh, comment question uh, from one of our big supporters, James at James Shannon Mo too, and you know he wanted to ask what I think of this being, uh, or what I think of Carpenter calling this the Apocalypse trilogy. You know, in the Mouth of Madness is part of that with the Thing and Prince of Darkness. 
and I will just say that I think it's perfect. You know, I think it fits in perfectly. And especially when you look at what all three are about, you know, the Thane is about essentially disease spreading through the world, right? Like, uh-huh. they're all about some kind of pandemic, just in different ways. And the Thane is about really disease. And Prince of Darkness, in my view, is a little bit, you know, if you look at it as an Antichrist film, it's a little bit about, uh, like, demagoguery and stuff like that. And and you know reality shifting and then you get to in the mouth of madness and it's all about fanaticism and uh and how that can destroy the world and how that and how fanaticism itself is kind of like a plague you know so (laughs) so i do think that the apocalypse trilogy title is appropriate and in the mouth of madness uh, you know if it wasn't for the thing having such great effects in the mouth (laughs) of madness would be my favorite of the three although i think all three are amazing but no this is such a great film like for anyone who is really into Lovecraft, I can't recommend this movie enough, you know, because uh, I think that some of us, when we first see In the Mouth of Madness, especially if you saw it around when it came out before Lovecraft was kind of a more popular name, uh, a lot of us might think Stephen King at first as as who Sutter Kane is kind of representing, uh, and he even mentioned Stephen King, or, or Stephen King is even mentioned in the movie himself, mm-hmm. you know, where, uh, where Styles played by Julie Carmen says, you know, Sutter Kane outsells Stephen King, you know, sells them all, you know. It's easy to relate it to Stephen King at first, but this is a Lovecraft film through and through. Sutter Kane is Lovecraft in a lot of ways. The creatures are all very Lovecraftian, oh, yeah. what you see of them, and, and the whole story itself dealing with madness and insanity, that was like Lovecraft's bag, right? <laughs> yeah, especially with a, a small town with things happening in the undercurrent, that feels very Lovecraftian. I get all my Lovecraft from movies, though. Right, and, you know, and, like, a lot of the dialogue in the film is kind of taken from Lovecraft stories. You know, there's certain elements, or there's certain moments where they're uh, reading from Sutter Kane's books, and some of that is actually Lovecraft dialogue from his stories. Oh, that's cool. And, I mean, you see references of the film all throughout, like, you know, there's a, a Pickman's Hotel, right, which is a spoof of Pickman's model. Um, you've got a reference to the old ones in this movie. Like, it's just... This to me is the ultimate Lovecraft movie. And I know that anybody who like I know I know if Sarah's listening to this, she loves Reanimator and you know, I know and, and I know everyone loves Color Out of Space and other films like that, but to me in the Mouth of Madness is the ultimate Lovecraft movie. <laughs> yeah, it feels the most true to like his type of narrative, right? Yes, exactly. Like there are a lot of great films that have been adapted from Lovecraft, but to me this is the most true through and through Lovecraft film. Uh, but with that being said, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back and spoil the crap out of In the Mouth of Madness. So if you have not seen it, I do strongly recommend checking it out before listening to this, and hopefully we can help you understand or, <laughs> or maybe appreciate more like what's going on in this movie. But that being said, we will be right back, so see you in a second. If you've been enjoying Killer Horror Critic, please make sure to head to iTunes and leave a review and rating, as this helps the show get noticed by others and would be a huge favor to me. Also make sure to check out my Patreon, where you can receive access to exclusive content, such as bonus questions for each episode, extra episodes, and more. To find out details, visit www.patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy tonight's episode. Alright, we're back here talking about the 1995 John Carpenter film In the Mouth of Madness, and... I also forgot to mention this film was written by Michael DeLuca, who uh, actually wrote the script for Freddy's Dead. <laughs> what? 
right. If that means anything to anyone, which which I find interesting because Freddy's Dead is kind of one that, you know, I mean, all the Nightmare on Elm Street films toy with reality a bit, but Freddy's Dead, I would argue, is the one that maybe toys with it the most because you really just never know. Like, Freddy's Dead's a very confusing yeah. film. Let's put it that way, you know? So, <laughs> uh, and that's not all on DeLuca. That film had a lot of issues, but... <laughs> But anyway, so we always like to start off with who we want to talk about. So again, you know, this film has uh, Sam Neill playing John Trent, Julie Carmen, who you can also see in Fright Night Part 2, uh, playing Linda Stiles, uh, Jurgen Prochnow plays Sutter Kane, David Warner shows up in this as Dr. Wren, uh, like we mentioned, Charlton Heston's in this movie. Who, who do you want to talk about in, in The Math of Madness? I feel like I have to stay true to form and choose the lady to talk about. Of course. Oh, yeah, so I want to talk about Linda Stiles. So for me, Linda's a very interesting character because on paper, she is not what I want out of a female character in this because she mm. feels very one-dimensional. No, yeah, well, she is. Yeah. <laughs> I she doesn't know. feel that way she is. I know. I'm going to get there. But that's kind of the thing is like when you first meet her, especially on first viewing, you don't know that until the end. And so you're meeting this this female character that feels like she's taken straight out of a pulp novel. Like her, mm. her first time meeting Trent, she's that very like buttoned up, no nonsense. Like she doesn't deal with any of Trent's crap ostensibly in that first meeting mm. like trent tries to hit on her at the elevator of just like oh we are gonna spoil everything oh yeah so many spoilers <laughs> yeah, like there's that moment where trent's hitting her by the elevator where he's just like we should go and share documents and blah blah and she's like yeah no and like walks away and for me that's a very quintessential like pulpy novel i le- read a lot of romance novels so it feels very pulled out of that mm. And it's interesting watching her devolving throughout the movie because she does start off with this very strong personality, very structured costuming. And then we get into the car and we get into the town. And as she's losing herself, realizing she's a character in this story and losing herself to what Sutter Kane has imagined for her, like she loses all that structure. Suddenly her very pinned up hair is now loose and flowing. Her very structured business suit is now switched out for like really cozy fucking looking pants and like flowy Mm. like cardigan type of thing. And it's the thing that I like about her character representation in this is the fact that her visuals match what's happening to her. Um, okay, so you think you think that her losing herself or, or becoming more of a character is represented by the fact that, what, that she gets prettier or like... Or, or, her or, hair <laughs> coming down does not make her prettier. She was well, already pretty. Well, no, she was, but I, I'm just trying to figure out, like, why does her hair coming down suddenly take away from who she is? Like, Oh, because it's, so it's a very common trope, like, in movies, in books, where you take a character who is very, like, uptight, reserved, which is what Linda is at the beginning when she first yep. meets Trent, and you you change her. Like, you take her from, like, completely updone hair and once you loosen it it's supposed to be like a visual key that like our character is relaxing and starting to trust the main character but in this case i would okay so you're not quite saying what i want you to which is that (laughs) which is that you're so i yes you're you're hat you're you're like 90 percent there but i think the part that's missing is that got a 90 (laughs) percent Is that what what's going on there is like it's not yes it's not about her being prettier right mm-hmm. but it's about her being more relaxed more mm-hmm. more approachable 
by Trent. You know, more more leaning into the femininity of it, right? Because when she let let's just put it this way, like, and this is obviously a wrong way to think <laughs> of this. You know, I'm not saying that this is how things should be thought of. But again, this is this is mid nineties. We're still not anywhere near where we should be with treating women in film. And you know, so if you if you consider this idea of like how let's just say fragile men are, right? <laughs> and how they can't uh they can't deal with strong women, you know, when you first meet Styles, yes, she is that sort of like I don't I don't know if I wanna say uptight, but she's definitely like more put together, she's confident. Uh, she has that strength in herself. She she no isn't, patience for Trent's shit. Right. She she isn't as approachable. She looks very like strict and business like, right? And then as the film's going on, she's becoming more and more of just like like basically she starts as like this really intimidating, supposed to feel like a femme fatale. I don't quite think it reaches that, but it's mm-hmm. supposed to feel like that. This being a kind of supernatural detective story. But as it's going on, it, she's loosening and loosening and loosening and just becoming more of, like, your sort of standard... Uh, love interest? Yes, your standard love interest. You know, she's loose, her hair's been let down, she's more approachable now, she doesn't have that, like, business-like feel to her, right? Uh, she's becoming more into trends, or so it seems, you know? And so, mm-hmm. so you can definitely see, like, all of that going on with her. She definitely is losing who she is as a person, yeah. Which which brings me to Trent in that, you know, Trent I find to be interesting because to me Trent is the perfect vessel for the reader, quote unquote, or in this case the viewer. You know, because whenever you whenever you have any kind of story, you know, you always typically the main character is someone who's kind of more of like an empty vessel for the viewer, the reader, to kind of relate to the story, right? They're seeing it through their eyes. And, you know, so when you look at Trent, there's... It, it's interesting, because, like, it, it it does feel like a novel version of a character where, you know, Trent's an insurance investigator, right? And when you think insurance investigator, I don't think anybody thinks of, like, some kind of glamorous job, right? No. But instead, the way Trent is portrayed to us as being, like... You know, there is something that's kind of glorified about it. He he seems like a like a detective, not an insurance investigator, right? Oh, yeah. He's like, you know, he's like questioning this guy and like there's smoke in the room and it, you know, it feels like we're in like some kind of seedy detective moment. Yeah, he's our quintessential pulp detective um character cuz he's constantly smoking. He right. has a cynical outlook on the world. And I mean, let's face it, Trent being the first one to put together that all of Sutter Kane's covers make a map. Fuck you. Any fan is going to figure that shit out. But because he's our main character in our vessel, he gets to be the smart one who discovers what everybody else missed. Sure. But I'm more getting to the fact that, you know, that that certain things about him are glorified. But then when you really look at him as a character, he's a boring guy. Oh, you know, yeah. he he's like... <laughs> I mean, his job itself should be boring. It's glorified in this case, but it should be boring. He doesn't really believe in much. He doesn't seem to have any sort of uh, faith or fandom. Like, I, I don't really know what Trent likes as a person. Mm-hmm. You know, cigarettes. so he cigarettes. Yes, he <laughs> likes smoking. Um, you know, so so he has he has very little that he's attached to, right? And it sort of makes him as well the perfect 
sort of tool uh, for people like Sutter Kane, who is this kind of like demagogue, right? Mm-hmm. And so the thing that I think is interesting about Trent is how, to me, he's sort of like the personification of what people go through when they do kind of become an, enveloped in some sort of cult or something like that, right? And and you could even relate it to Trumpism <laughs> and what goes on with Trump supporters. And, you know, again, I don't mean to insult people that, that you know, believe in Trump. I kind of do at this point if you still believe in him because I don't yeah. understand how you could believe in such a fucking monster. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but but in the early years of Trump, like, you can sort of see this kind of thing happening where, you know... Uh, Trent becomes the victim of suggestive manipulation, in my opinion. Like, you go through the film, and, you know, first he, first he's seeing, like, you know, newscasts talking about uh, all these fans of Sutter Kane and how they're, like, going nuts with bookstores, and it, it sort of seems like this sort of Fox News, like, highly stylized, fear-mongering type media, right? Yeah. And, and then... It, and then he meets Styles, and she's telling him about like the negative effects that Kane's books have on people. And you know, then then you have townspeople once they get to the town telling them that people are turning into things. And then what do you know? They do turn into things. Uh, and then later you have Sutter Kane telling him that uh, did I ever tell you my favorite color was blue? And he wakes up and everything's blue. And it's just like you know, I do believe all that stuff is happening to Trent yeah. but but it's sort of to me like a metaphor for or again a personification for like how suggestive manipulation works because everything that Trent's told then begins to happen yeah and so what you're really seeing is like you're seeing Trent be dragged further and further into actually believing in Sutter Kane uh, I think it's there's also really small things that are happening that that add up to that. Just the simple repeating of the phrase of I see you, I can see you, he sees you. Like he's before he even gets to Sutter Kane, everybody around him is kind of saying that or he's hearing, you know, what should be a really innocuous sentence being said to him, which is, Do you read Sutter Kane? Which, mm. you know, to everybody else, oh that's it's just somebody inquiring if you read their favorite author, but it's it's a whole extra level when you add it to everything else that Trent is going to going through. Right. Um, that gets him to that point that we see him in um in the publisher's office at the end where he's telling this whole story. And publisher asks him, Charleston Heston asks him, like, do you believe this? And he's like, What choice do I have? Mm. I either have to accept that what I went through was real or I'm crazy. Those are my only two options. Right. I feel like that's such a moment for Trent. <laughs> oh, and I think that's a moment you see a lot of people going through now too, right? Like, you know, take QAnon, for example. Like, I've seen all these reports of... And, and for those who don't know, which you should by now, you know, QAnon's this fucking crazy-ass group that believes that, like, all Democrats are fucking Satan-worshipping blood drinkers, right? And and they thought Trump was, like, some kind of godlike savior that was going to save America and all this stuff. And, of course, we see that that didn't happen. Nope. Um, but something I've seen, you know, the, some of these QAnon believers going through is you see people that are having to, like, deal with the reality that they were conned and that Trump was, in fact, not some kind of savior that was going to, like, arrest Joe Biden and all these all of his... <laughs> you know, supporters and whatnot. And, and I've seen reports with them where it's like, they, they still want to deny certain things 
because they can't accept the reality that they are crazy. Yeah. You know, that they... They believed they in believed. the wrong thing. Exactly. And and so anyway, you know, so that's just... It's just something that you see Trent going through where it's like he... Again, if you think back to the Trump campaign, right? Like you mentioned the sort of innocuous, like, do you read Sutter Kane? You know, yeah, that should just be a whatever question. But to me, it's like the same thing as make America great again, right? It's like, yeah, that should just be a whatever phrase, but you keep hearing it over and over again. And suddenly it becomes like religion, you yeah. know, like, like that phrase itself became religion for Trump supporters. And, you know, and it's like we've developed, you know, now we're talking about like a fucking MAGA party. And I'm sorry, this is, <laughs> this is another Trump episode. Look, guys, Trump relates a lot to all this fucking end of the world shit we've been going on. It really for does. Years. So, so like you look at, you know, you look at the MAGA party, like now, now we're actually talking about a real MAGA party, right? You know, it's not like Republicans and Democrats. It's an actual MAGA party that is formed out of this fanaticism for fucking Trump. Yeah. And, you know, so, so I just, I relate Sutter Kane to a lot of that of, you know, to me, Sutter Kane is like a Trump-like figure where it's just... You know, in one case, you got Trump telling lies like the election lie. Mm -hmm. And in another case, you have Sutter Kane writing words that people believe in. And even though they're two different things, they're really part of the same mechanism of just manipulating people into believing in you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Sutter Kane has a moment um, when he's in the confessional with Trent where he's just like, my work is the most believed stuff. I outsell the Bible. So, of course, everyone who reads my stuff believes. I. I had a moment with that sentence where he's just, I'm like, okay, just because people are reading your book doesn't mean they believe what's happening in it. But then all of reality changes within the mouth of madness. So I am, I am well, incorrect. Well, see, but I disagree with that, which before I say what I want to say with that, what, you know, this brings me to the next point, which is like, what do you think the film's point of view on religion is? Because religion does come up quite a bit in this movie. It does. It comes up for me. Religion comes up in the very first scene because, we get this outside exterior of a mental hospital that looks like a church. Mm. Like, so I kind of feel like there's religious iconography, like, throughout this entire film. Um, Not to mention Trent filling his room with crosses, crosses. and himself, which, which I just want to say... It's mentioned that he's given a single black crayon, and I just have to say, he gets a lot of mileage out of that crayon. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to say. Like, okay, the crayon would absolutely work on all the walls and his clothing, but as a kid who repeatedly colored on themselves, you cannot use a crayon on yourself. How is that what you're focused on and not the fact that one single black <laughs> crayon somehow filled this entire room with black crosses and his wardrobe and his body? It's a good crayon. <laughs> No, <laughs> no crayon lasts that long. That crayon would have broken after like five crosses. I mean, <laughs> that's definitely true. I don't know. It's like, who drew on themselves? Like, I look at that. I'm like, that's a All lot. Right, whatever. <laughs> what were you saying about it? <laughs> so for me, you know, I think it's really interesting because look, our, the nature of our society changed with one good book, ostensibly. Like, the the change in our society when the Bible was introduced and Christianity ran rampant through, through Europe, I feel like is very similar to what we're seeing in The Mouth of Madness. You have a good enough book, regardless of if the message is good or bad or whatever, whatever with it, it changes the fabric of society. Um, and so... The message I get from In the Mouth of Madness when it comes to religion is that if you follow it blindly, it'll just kind of drag you down and turn you into a weird, creepy, slime monster creature. 
and also maybe make you hit people with an axe. Okay, I mean that's not quite the message I take from it, but <laughs> uh, but no, I mean yeah, the concept is the power of words, yeah, and, and the power of uh, of a book, right, and of fiction, and and this idea that. You know, just because it's fiction doesn't mean you can't believe in it because we see people believing in fiction all the time. Again, going back to, you know, the whole the whole rigged election thing, you know, it's fiction. It's a lie. But when you have enough people saying it over and over and over and over again, it becomes truth. You know, it becomes truth for the people who don't know any better and who just buy into the lie. And it sort of starts to become truth for the people saying the lie. Like, I... I actually believe that Trump probably thought that the election was rigged at a certain point. Like, oh, definitely. I, like, I do believe that he thought it at a certain point because he had said it so many times. So, so no, yeah, when you look at, uh, when you look at this film's kind of commentary on religion, to me, it's as simple as, as yes, like how powerful that can be, how powerful words can be, because. You know, no offense to anybody, the Bible is fiction. I mean, yeah. unless, you know, I don't really believe in Jesus walking on water and no. turning <laughs> water to wine and, and bread to fish or whatever the fuck he does, you know. Uh, I think religion is a tool to help you try to understand and justify certain things in the world and find mm-hmm. some kind of morality. Like, religion teaches us, you know, how to sort of live life like don't murder don't do this you know all of them do it differently but the main goal is to really just help guide you through life that's yeah, to not be a shitty person right that's what religion's supposed to be you're not yeah. supposed to actually <laughs> believe that fucking jesus christ walked on water you're not supposed to believe that part of it it's a story it's storytelling right every yeah. story has a moral and that's what the bible is it's a book full of morality tales and so and so when you when you look at what's going on here, you know, this is really just, it is talking about how we can misunderstand the purpose of fiction and how we can believe in it so much that it becomes real. The Bible is an example of that. You know, the Bible is fiction, but enough people believe in the Bible that it became reality to a point where now, like, we have laws based on the Bible. Yep. <laughs> you know, we have, we have laws... We have laws based on what the Bible says. And it's like, you know, when you really think about that concept, it's like we're basing the way we live off of something a few storytellers wrote. Like, it's not. Yeah, they from thousands of years ago. Right, exactly. And we just keep following it because that's just what we do when we believe in something. We made, we made the Bible reality. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that's why, for me, I feel like with this film, the people who don't understand that it's fiction and you have to separate who are too fanatical about the works, like, they get turned into creepy slime monsters. Like, (laughs) they do. Like, that's why for me with this, it's like, you know, it's one thing to read a book and like it. I feel like we've all had books in our childhood that we've read that we really connected with the heroine or the message or something like that. And it did shape us a bit. Um, I know I definitely have have those books that shaped me as a person. Um, but the moment that you take it out of that fiction, that it's fiction and it's not real, and you start believing it, then it's just potentially a slow Lovecraftian right. and, walk. <laughs> and for anyone who's confused, like think about it this way: think about if we all just decided that Superman was based on a true story, 
Yeah. Like, what if we all decided that Superman was actually a real character, like a real person that existed, and we just didn't know who they were? You know, like, what if we all just suddenly believed in Superman? Now, all of a sudden, Superman is part of reality. Now, all of a sudden, I'm watching news broadcasts where a fire is happening somewhere, and someone is saying, where's Superman? Why isn't <laughs> Superman doing something about this, you know? that That is the idea of In the Mouth of Madness, is just that if enough people start believing in one thing, that thing becomes reality. And what I think is interesting with the whole religion angle here is you do have Sutter Kane saying things like, more people read my work than the Bible. The point to that is, is that he has a greater influence by having his work be this fiction that people read and be translated into 18 different languages and be all over the world, you know? And it's why the shit, like, you know, I, I wrote an article recently about how, uh, about how In the Mouth of Madness kind of predicted the sort of fanaticism that played out at the Capitol recently. Mm -hmm. And one of my points with that was is that, you know, you look at Sutter Kane's words there, and what he's really talking about is influence. And, you know, I, I, I compared it to how Trump has a Twitter account. Trump doesn't have to be a, a, an intelligent, literate author, right? No. Nope. For people to hear his <laughs> words. He had Twitter. He had 140 characters every day to spread his fiction. And the thing with the President of the United States is, it's the most powerful person in the world. And guess what? Everybody hears what they say. Whether or not you believe in it, you hear it. And so, you know, when I think of Sutter Kane saying, like, more people believe in my work than the Bible, more people read his work than the Bible, it's a chilling thought when you think, well, if I have a president who is spreading fiction through their Twitter account that everybody's listening to, suddenly it's not fiction anymore. Yeah, you know? it's the new reality. Suddenly enough people believe in it that it is reality now. So... But, okay, I keep going away from the religion a little bit. The thing I, one thing I do want to mention before we go on here is how people also use fiction uh, to justify their reality. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that's kind of fun here is that, so you think of uh, the town Hobbs End where this takes place. Uh, Hob, as I understand it, was a term that was once kind of used to refer to the devil at some point. Oh. And, and that's where it comes from in Lovecraft's work as well. And... So I almost feel like it's kind of a joke because you have you have uh, Sutter Kane and all of his evil coming out of Hobbs End. Mm -hmm. But the joke there is that Kane and the Old Ones and all of that, they're not the devil. They're not Satan. They have nothing to do with the Bible. Yeah. It just happens to be that our puny little human brains, <laughs> uh, we can only we can only accept that as being the devil because it's what we know. Yeah. Like, that's the reality that we believe in. We we can't accept the idea that there's, like, this greater evil than Satan, right? So... <laughs> well, see, now that you told me that, I like the concept that they're in Hobbes End because it's the end of the devil. The old gods are back. Fuck those new gods. Well, sort of, but, it, you know, you see throughout the film how religion actually ends up being useless. Yeah. You know, we, we all... You know, we all believe in religion in some... Well... A lot of people believe in religion in some kind of way where they think it's going to help them, protect them, and that's their reality. But, you know, this is sort of pointing out how that reality has shifted because you see Trent, like, covering himself in crosses. He covers the room in crosses. 
doesn't do shit. Doesn't nope. help. <laughs> no. Nope. Rel- religion has no use here, you know, even though even though we can only comprehend Sutter Kane and everything else as being the devil, it doesn't matter. That's not the reality anymore. So Well, like we've kind of touched on it a bit talking about religion, but like this movie's all about how malleable reality is. So what are your kind of thoughts on how it presents reality, I guess? Well, I mean, we've already talked about it a lot, but you know, I just want to point out like to me, the one of the scariest moments just in film, like not even just this movie, but in film, period, is when Styles and Trent are driving, looking for the town of Hobbs End, and they have that conversation about reality, right? Yeah. And and Trent is saying things like, this is reality, this is reality. And Styles is just making the point of like, well, it's reality in your viewpoint, but what if everyone suddenly shared a different viewpoint then your reality would no longer be reality and you'd be the crazy one, you know? And that's just, it's something that I've thought about over and over and over again, really ever since Trump took office and thank God he's gone now at the time you're listening to this. But, <laughs> but it's something I thought about so much because, you know, I started, I started to see all these people believing obvious lies. You know, it all started with, um, I promise you all this will be the last Trump episode <laughs> for a while, but uh, but it all started with the inauguration, right? You know, Trump gets inaugurated and, you know, the first c- press conference that Sean Spicer has is he comes out and he starts talking about how Trump had the largest crowd size ever. <laughs> and all we had to do was look at photos to say that that wasn't true. Yep. You know, all we had to do was compare photos of Trump's inauguration to Obama's and say, it is very obvious that Trump, in fact, did not have the largest <laughs> inauguration ever. But I started thinking about it because there were enough people that believed Sean Spicer and Trump. And it just started, you know, it just started forming this idea in my head of like, my God, what if enough people start believing that instead of the reality that's right in front of their faces? You know, then what are we in? Then then suddenly I'm the crazy one. Uh, I'm the crazy one for saying, no, you're wrong. <laughs> it was Obama that had the biggest. Like, <laughs> I feel like it's really interesting because our, our reality has always been malleable. Like, let's look towards past times when people used to think that the earth was flat. Look, you can stand that up. That was reality then. Yeah, and that if was you said reality. Anyth- and if you said anything else, you were like a witch who yeah. got on. <laughs> and like to your point, like if you stand out in a field, you can see the curvature of the earth. You can see it curving away. So like this, that whole society wasn't accepting what they could see with their own eyes. And then there, there was a reality shift. We right. all accepted what the actual truth was. But it makes me worried that, like, maybe we're going to find out that the world is actually not flat, but, like, a completely different shape. We've all just... No, I, I think I think we've all established <laughs> the shape of the world through space, Chris. Like, <laughs> we have f- actual photos from space. There is no debating anymore the shape Everything of the world. <laughs> There's still flat earthers, though. There are, but that's the point, is that, you know... It's easy to look at groups of people and say you're crazy. Yeah. But if those groups become large enough, then suddenly you're the crazy one. No matter what the truth is, you're the crazy one because the new reality becomes what the larger group thinks. You know, I mean, you can even relate it to what's going on right now as we're recording this where you have all these Republicans act, they're almost acting like the Capitol attack never happened. You know, they're almost acting like it was fine or like, or like, you know, it wasn't, it it had nothing to do with Trump or whatever, you know, it's almost like we're almost immediately dismissing the reality of an event that took place 
and there and and when you consider the fact that you know 70% of republicans like thought nothing of it really yeah you know that's a frightening thought because it tells you that there is a very large group in this country that just does not believe in the same reality that you and I are seeing with our own eyes you know so so no i when it comes to reality within the mouth of madness i, I think it's just the whole concept is really boiling down to this idea that reality is fragile you know and i think i think when you're growing up before you start to think of these kind of ideas we tend to think of reality as just being what it what the definition is of just your your existence the things that are in front of you if i touch your hand that's reality you exist in my reality right and we don't really consider how malleable it actually is but as you get older and you start realizing that there are all these different viewpoints on things you know you could find yourself one day <laughs> this is the chilling thought to me is you could find yourself one day where you look up at the sky and it's blue the way that it's always been but everyone else tells you it's red and suddenly you have to think well either i'm crazy or that's the reality now cuz you won't convince anybody else that they're wrong <laughs> that is a terrifying so. chilling thought it is. So, you know, in the mouth of madness, is, it's preaching this lesson of just like, understand that your reality is not permanent, that you have to actually fight to keep the reality that you have, you know, so like you can't just take it for granted. <laughs> but all right, we're almost 55 minutes into this thing and we still haven't talked about Trent and Styles' relationship, <laughs> which, which I want to make sure we touch on. So we talked a little bit about each of them as a person, but what do you think mm -hmm. of their relationship together and how they're treated in this film? So I find their relationship really interesting because, like I've said already in this episode, I love romance movies and romance novels and stuff like that. And I get really annoyed with films that try to shoehorn in a romance that doesn't make any sense. And what I like about In the Mouth of Madness is the fact that we have all of the guide markers for them to ostensibly hook up and have a love interest thing. Like we have them at odds in the beginning and then slowly like bantering in the car and becoming closer and it doesn't ever pan out and I'm really happy for that and there's a moment in the car at the very end where Trent's trying to get the two of them away from the town that I feel like really highlights how dumb it is to shoehorn in a romance that doesn't work because um Styles has a line where she's going Kane's writing me he wants me to kiss you and Trench is like why she's like because well, it's not like why he's like oh god why <laughs> <laughs> okay he's oh god why um because she's trying to make out with him while he's trying to drive away from this horrible town and her response is because it's good for the book it's what the readers want to read mm. and I feel like that is the best example of why like if you're just putting in a relationship for the sake of the readers the audience and there's nothing behind it because they never build up trust they never like make any kind of connection there's nothing there yeah. so like i like the way there's this line that's basically like if you shoehorn it in this is how ridiculous it looks yeah it's funny because when i was a kid before i understood all the themes going on in the mouth of madness you know i actually i actually used to not like julie carmen's performance in this because i thought she was kind of flat and then as I started to understand like what this movie's actually about, I realized it's actually a great performance because she she is playing into this idea of her character being forced to be a certain way by Sutter Kane, right? And 
And so, like, when you first watch this, it's like, yeah, there is no chemistry between these two whatsoever, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, even even early on when she is still, quote-unquote, herself, there there's no chemistry there. Like, there's an absolute, like, you know, chastity belts on. <laughs> the, the key has been swallowed and thrown away. There's no way you are getting in or around this area, Trent. You know, like, this, like that is their relationship from the very beginning. And so when she kind of is starting to come on to him more or loosen up or whatever, you know, like the whole thing just feels very stiff. And, and you start to realize it's like, oh, it's because this is a commentary on, you know, how authors and, and writers, like how we, how we view storytelling sometimes, right. Or, yeah. or how, or what we do to our own characters. And I got to tell you, like as a writer myself, like it's, it's unsettling to see moments like what you just described play out in this movie. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you're when you're a writer and you're writing stories like this, the characters do start to feel a bit real to you. And when you see moments like that, it's like it's reaffirming their fictional humanity. Yeah. <laughs> and how and how you are sort of like a godlike figure is kind of forcing them into your little plan, right? <laughs> Ostensibly Sutter Kane's just taking two Barbie dolls and smashing their faces together and thinks that works. Right, exactly. <laughs> is that not how sex works? Um but <laughs> but you know, so it's it it's unsettling. Like it's it's there's something so disturbing about seeing her lean over to kiss him and saying it's what the readers want. And and it speaks too to like how how we view movies a lot, even in the horror genre, you know, there are so many relationships that oh. just, that are awful in this genre, <laughs> um, with, with just like, you know, people mistreating women and stuff like that. And it's just like, you know, and, and, and we always see it in film and, and books where, yeah, if there's, if there's a, if there's a man and a woman together, well, they must. We're going to smush them together like Barbie dolls. They gotta be smushed together. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and it's. It's something. It's why I look at this film. And I'm like, you know, in the Mouth of Madness is kind of, even though by 1995 this should not have been considered ahead of its time, it is ahead of its time in a sense because it's already kind of fighting back against that idea of like just because we have a man and a woman together does not mean that they have to fuck, right? Exactly. Um, but 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 you know they're commentating on that with Kane trying to force them <laughs> together and showing us how ridiculous that is, right? <laughs> right. If you ignore the agency of your own characters, if you ignore what you set up in their personality and their relationship and then try to force a romance, look, your audience knows exactly what you're doing. You're not fooling right. anybody, Sutter Kane. Well, it's kind of funny because, you know, at the end, uh, Trent is claiming that, well, she was written out, you know, and it almost makes you feel like, Oh yeah, you know, in another draft, Kane probably read this and was like, "Oh, the relationship's not working. I'm just gonna cut her out." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it also speaks to just very briefly. It also speaks to how Lovecraft stories are just awful about women. Like oh. if you if you read Lovecraft's work, it's it's a it's pretty sexist. He was also a huge racist. You know, there's not <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of terrible qualities about Lovecraft. Um, but he but they're racist. His wife divorced him. Right there, there's not a lot of great women in his stories, and I, I would even argue there's none. And it's why, like, um, if you look at the film Dagon that Stuart Gordon yeah. made, uh, it's why Dagon actually, uh, Stuart actually tried to like make a somewhat stronger fighter of a woman who, who kind of outshines the male protagonist in a lot of moments, mm -hmm. uh, because they were like, there are no good women in in, in Lovecraft stories, and we want to at least try to have a character that does a little bit something, right? Yeah. But no, but no, it's an issue with his work, and I, I feel like 
uh, Linda also kind of represents that concept of how Lovecraft just never wrote good <laughs> women characters. So, so I don't be going long. So wrapping this up, what are your thoughts on the ending of this film? Because I'm gonna be honest, I'm a little kerfuffled about it. Okay, well, so. <clears throat> I mean, look, you know, right off the bat, this is an ending that I don't think anyone... I don't, I don't think there's a right answer. Yeah. You know, first of all, I'll just say that. But we did, a, we did get a comment from at Evan Conaway for one, and so it's E-V-A-N-C-O-N-A-W-A-Y-F-O-R-1, and one the number, not spelled out. Uh, and they, they wanted to ask, you know, if this ending had always been uh, the plan, and... I don't know. I don't know what different iterations the ending went through, or whether or not this was always the plan. I do know that there is extra footage from the ending that's out there. You can actually find photos of this, uh, where where Styles does show up in the theater with Trent. There's actually a really creepy shot that you can easily look up on Google, where it has a uh, Styles in the seat behind Trent kind of leaning forward and her eyes are all like white and everything. Uh. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's very unsettling. So I know that was originally supposed to be there as kind of like a jump scare that was taken out. So I know that's not the best answer to your question, Evan, but I, I tried and I couldn't <laughs> find anything else. But, <laughs> but as far as the ending itself, I would just say this. I think that, I think that you can take it two ways. I think that you can take this film at face value and you can take it as this really was a Lovecraftian story about a man being driven crazy by the old ones and Sutter Kane and all this apocalyptic nonsense. Or you can take it as living closer to the title of In the Mouth of Madness and the film really honestly just being an exploration of madness itself and going crazy. And... You know, it brings me back to the whole idea of suggestive manipulation all throughout the movie is that every time Trent is told something, whether by the media or by Styles or by one of these townspeople or by Sutter Kane, it's always that when he's told something that then that thing starts to become more of his reality. You know, it's like a progressive, uh, a progressive belief in everything, a progressive madness in this. And... My theory is supported a little bit by the fact that if you if you watch the film, I, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe you'll notice that Sam Neill is in room number nine in the asylum. Yep. They also rent room number nine when they go to the hotel uh, in Hobbs End. And it just starts to make me think, like, you know, it's very possible that Trent actually is just crazy. <laughs> Uh, and that all of this is just kind of the story that he bought into and the sort of fanaticism that he bought into, you know? Mm -hmm. Because just like event after event after event is just leading him further and further down the rabbit hole of this madness. <laughs> so then Trent's a fucking liar because he tries to assert several times that he's nobody's puppet. He doesn't dance on anybody's strings. And the truth is, he dances on everybody's strings. He picks well, up every pamphlet, believes everything he hears. Well, I mean, look the the key to the key to madness is that we, you know, <laughs> I I would say there are very few people who are mad who actually know that they're mad, right? Like yeah. if you're if you're mad, it's because you believe in the things you're saying, you know. So. <laughs> So in Trent's case, I mean, and yes, there's hypocrisy in that. So in Trent's case, 
He might believe he's nobody's puppet. He might believe he's not crazy, but he might actually be those things. So <laughs> I'm just going to say, though, like if I had to go out like trying, I mean, not that he's who knows if he's dead or alive at the end of everything. But to be able to go well, to a giant movie theater and watch a funny little clip show of my adventures would be pretty great. Well, look, I mean, the ending is, you know, the ending is, the again, the personification of madness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the idea of watching like he. I, w- I would think of it this way, right? So that ending, the way that I look at it, that's that's Trent in the theater of his mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. You know, like that's all it is. He's not he's not actually going to a theater and seeing it, like himself on screen in a movie that somehow captured all of his moments. Like that, that's not what's happening. You know, the movie doesn't even play out like that. It plays out like memories. Yeah. You know, it plays out where Trent's saying, "This is not reality. Not reality. Not reality." This is reality, you know, like it's... <laughs> and then him screaming, it's a funny little clip show. Yeah, it's one way to look at it, you know, but it's it's really just, yes, I, I, think that, I think that that is just really showing how insane Trent is. That, that is. that is the culmination of his insanity, is witnessing all the things that he thought were real becoming this fiction on screen, you know, and just realize, like... It's like it's like it's like your eyes being open for the first time and seeing that everything you believed in was fiction. Yeah. You know, and Ooh. realizing he's insane, which is why I think that that laugh that you see at the end, I feel like that's him realizing how crazy he is. <laughs> and finally accepting it. Accept <laughs> I don't know that accepting is the word I would use, but but understanding that he is not who he thought he was. <laughs> oh, fair enough. That's ex- kind of how I view it. Yeah. I accept that. That's a much better interpretation of the ending than mine. Well, what's yours? Mine is just Trent wandered into a, a theater and watched a funny little clip show. <laughs> so you have no theory at all. You're just <laughs> no. I, here's my thing: is like I have a tendency, in my experiences with me, that I take movies a little bit more at face value generally, and so like I'm just with Trent. Trent and I are just we busted it out of the mental hospital and we went and watched a funny little clip show. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. So, no. No, no that's, that's not what I think is happening there. Um, uh, all right. We got to start wrapping up, though. So, who's your killer idiot of In the Mouth of Madness? Uh, I'm going to go with the editor that we meet in the beginning who tries to attack Trent with the axe because it's pretty much set up that he tried to do that to stop everything from happening. And it's just like, dumb, dumb, you read the script. You know this is going to set Trent off and set everything into motion. You should have just stayed at home. I don't think that's why he's dumb. I think he's dumb because he just didn't get a gun. This is fucking America. <laughs> you can buy a gun from, like, any kid on the street probably. I mean, they're probably handing them out at the local Target, you know? It's like just... <laughs> I mean, that's definitely true. But an axe is more thematic. I guess. Um, no, my killer idiot was just literally everyone reading the books because <laughs> when you're here, when you know... Again, it speaks to like the the honestly stupidity of humanity because when you're hearing on the news that anyone who reads these books is going insane, maybe the bookstores should stop carrying the books and maybe <laughs> new readers should not be reading the books, you know? So like <laughs> But everybody's gotta test their metal. Maybe I but, won't go crazy. <laughs> no, but I mean it's the thing with humans. Like we smoke cigarettes even though we know they cause cancer. We we eat fast food even though we know it'll kill us. Like, you know, 
That's just human beings. We're just like, ah, eh, fuck it. I don't care. I like it, you know, and then we just do whatever. So <laughs> Look, we figured out how to eat animals we were definitely not supposed to eat. Like, sorry, it's our it's our gift. Uh I would not call it a gift. <laughs> um what about your killer death? Uh, I'm gonna go with Mr. Pikmin just because I really liked seeing the uh, Mrs. Pikmin monster with all the mm. tentacles and stuff. So I mean, his death wasn't remarkable, but I got to see a really cool monster. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna say Styles becoming a J horror twisty monster because uh, I, I really do love this moment. It's not very Lovecraftian to me, if I'm being honest. It's the one thing that sort of feels like it doesn't fit. But but Styles becoming like this twisty upside down whatever creature it, it strikes me as very j horror-esque you know it's like yeah. something that you would see in a it's like something you would see in a junji ito story you know like uzumaki or something like that oh definitely and you mentioned the monsters a quick point that i want to make too uh that i forgot to mention that, that's something i really love about this film is a lot of people i feel like complain that there are not enough monsters or creatures uh viewable in in the mouth of madness and it is unfortunate in a sense, because when you look at, I believe it was K&B that did the effects for this, when when you do look at the glimpses of the creatures, they are extremely well designed, like considering that they're in the movie for mere seconds, right? The thing that I like about that, though, is this is a Lovecraft story. And Lovecraft was always about how you can't really describe the creature that you're seeing because it is so far from what we understand as reality that it drives you insane just looking at it right yeah so i actually like the idea that you don't really see them because they're supposed to be a mystery yeah um but all right lastly who's your killer mvp so this might be a weird one sutter kane like i just really liked him i really liked how so you like jurgen prognos performance is what you're saying i do i like his performance but i also like the costuming and the styling of him he looks exactly how you picture a horror writer writing books with the covers we see we always just dress all in black and <laughs> well i mean and that's the thing is like, look like gothy kids or whatever <laughs> but i mean this whole movie's about you know the reality versus the fiction and i feel like sutter kane is this fictional image of what a horror author looks like even though they never do but what he looks like and it's what i love about this film like the costume designer is uh robin uh michelle bush i want to say and I just think they did such a great underrated job with um, the costuming of everybody. Sure, no, everybody looks how they should. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, my MVP is going to go to Michael DeLuca, the writer, because I, I actually think this is a brilliant script. And, and if, if I'm being perfectly honest, I think it's the most intelligent script that Carpenter's ever worked with. And I know that people are going to hear that and be like, how dare you say that? He directed <laughs> the thing in Halloween and blah, blah, like... Yes, Carpenter has a lot of great movies. I'm not denying that, but in terms of the writing, I, I just in the mouth of madness is just like it's a brilliant fucking movie. I mean, you know, Carpenter's done a lot of great films that have a lot of layers to them. You know, They Live, Athena uh, is one of them too. Like that, he, he's done all kinds of films like that. To me, though, this script is just so well written. Like it's. <laughs> I know that the the final movie doesn't quite connect to everybody, and that's fine. But just when you really start to look at like the words being said in this and how everything plays out, like it's just such a smart film. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> uh, I cannot think of a film that better captures the horror of fanaticism than this movie. Like, <laughs> so, so no, it goes to Michael DeLuca. I just the Freddy's Dead guy wrote a great movie and. <laughs> 
And it's unfortunate that I think after Freddy's Dead, he wasn't really being hired for much. Because um, I do think this is a great film. So, uh, But all right, so we also like to wrap up with our film ranking at the end of the month. So this month we've talked about In the Mouth of Madness, uh, the uh, Hell Comes to Frogtown. Ten Cloverfield Lane. Ten Cloverfield Lane. And Night of the Comet. And Night of the Comet. So, so between those, how would you rank our films this month? <laughs> okay. So I feel like I always have to put out there that I rank on rewatchability, not what which one's the best film. So for me, this was tough. At number four came Hell Comes to Frogtown. Uh-huh. Uh, I really, I do really like certain aspects of it, but in comparison to everything else, you know. Uh, number three is 10 Cloverfield Lane. Okay. Um, number two is Night of the Comet, because I fucking love those teen girls. And number one for me comes in mouth in the mouth of the madness. That normally wouldn't be a number one for me, but I feel like you have to rewatch it. And so, in terms of ranking for rewatchability, you have to rewatch In the Mouth of Madness multiple times. So it gets number one. That... What you just said makes no sense, but... <laughs> uh, it totally makes sense. Well, are you saying that because you rewatched it, you appreciate it for what it is? Or yes. You s- okay, so that's where it didn't make sense. You're, you're saying... Because you originally you were saying, hey, it's number one because you have to rewatch it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I mean, so my list is pretty much the same. I also have Hell Comes to Frogtown at four just because I... It's a fun movie. We talked about it. It's got a lot of issues, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it's Night of the Comet. I love that film, but I just think that... 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is next, is just a masterful movie in terms of, like, tension building and, and that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, In the Mouth of Madness, <laughs> I just think, honestly, is one of the most brilliant horror films ever written. I It really makes me upset that it's not, like, you know, a top 10 or 20 film for most people. Because, so. <laughs> um, again, I get it. There, there are things that are not done well about it. It's not Carpenter's most well-directed film, but, God, this script just has so much great stuff in it. But all right, so that's going to do it for us on In the Mouth of Madness and our theme of the end of the world as we know it. Uh, we currently have our new theme being voted on for Patreon for February, so we'll be announcing that this week sometime, probably by the time you're listening to this. And so we're going to move into our Patreon stuff now. So uh, we're going to be talking about what our thoughts are on the fact that this starts in a small town and kind of spreads to the city and, and why we always see it starting in a place like that. Uh, we're also going to talk about whether or not we ever feel like Trent and like our characters in a story and, and where that sort of feeling comes from. So if you'd like to hear that, just go to patreon.com slash killer horror critic for just a dollar a month. You get access to all our additional bonus content. Uh, we also have lists and bonus episodes and uh, new movie recommendations for what's coming out and stuff like that. So again, any support you could give us would be great. Every dollar goes back to our writers and helps pay for them and, you know, just keeps us bringing out good content that you enjoy hopefully and i just want to give a shout out to our killer members uh ben scouten michael campbell kelsey lynn martin Nichetta, and seth vermont and just thank you so much for supporting us and all you do we really cannot do this without any of you so just thank you for all you do for us uh and that's gonna do it for us on in the mouth of madness so i'm matt and i'm chris and have a great night horror fans bye I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of Killer Horror Critic. If you'd like to scream with us some more, please subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Killer From Space, as well as Instagram at Killer underscore Horror underscore Critic. New episodes release every Friday, so keep your eyeballs peeled. 
just the way I like them. Have a good night, horror fans. <laughs>